0: Our Bible reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, uh, verses 7 to 12. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering." So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Havites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Amen.
1: God says, I've seen, I've heard. I know. He says, "I've come down. I'm sending you. I will be with you." What's God seen? He's seen the misery of his people in Egypt, as he sees the misery of people around the world. He hasn't just seen it. He's watched it closely. He's seen the way his people are oppressed by the Egyptians. All those years when it looked as if God was doing nothing, maybe as if he wasn't even there, God was watching, observing, taking careful note of everything that was going on. And what did God hear? He heard them crying out because of the injustice they were suffering. He heard them crying out under their slave drivers. Were they crying out to him in prayer? Were they just screaming with pain from the lash? Or were they just groaning in anger and despair? We don't know. Whether their cries were directly addressed to God or not, he heard And if their cries were addressed to him, then for all those years of apparently unanswered prayer, God was listening and taking careful note of everything that was going on. God saw. God heard. God knew. I know all about their suffering. I'm concerned about it. I'm taking it on board. I feel sorry for them and so i have come down to rescue them from the hand of the egyptians everything is seen everything is heard everything he knows brings god to the point where he says the time has come to say enough it's time to end the oppression it's time to finish the enslavement of his people It's time to bring them out of Egypt to the land he promised to give them all those years before, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's time to get involved and bring an end to the inhuman way his people have been treated for all these years. Now is the time, but why now? Why not years, decades earlier? Why the delay? Why not step in and sort it out straight away? Natural questions to ask, not easy questions to answer. And the Bible doesn't give us a straightforward answer. If there is any kind of satisfactory answer at all. We can only speculate, but we can't help asking the question and wondering why. Maybe one clue, one possible answer is found at the end of chapter 2, where it says that the king of Egypt died. Just a passing phrase. The man who had been directly responsible for the policies and atrocities that caused so much suffering to the Israelites was no more. He was gone. He was dead and buried. There was a new man on the throne now. And what difference did that make? None whatsoever. The Israelites were still crying out and groaning in their slavery. And their oppression wasn't just the result of one man's megalomania. One pharaoh dies, another takes his place, and nothing changes. When that happens, when a change of ruler doesn't bring about a change in policy, the problems of a nation start to become endemic. And it's important to bear that in mind when we come to look at those difficult passages at the plagues. Why does the whole nation of Egypt suffer so much? Because the policies of one man is because it wasn't the policy of one man anymore. The ruler changed and the policies didn't. As one ruler succeeded another, it became part of Egyptian national policy. Part of the way they just treated these people. So, did God wait and bide his time because he wanted to give Pharaoh number two the opportunity to reverse the genocidal policies pursued by Pharaoh number one? Maybe so, because God is patient. Maybe he was giving them time to change before he intervened to judge Egypt and liberate his people. It's always part of God's character to allow us the maximum opportunity to repent and change our ways. But what was clear as a result of that delay was that the Israelite suffering wasn't just down to one man. The same policy pursued by a different ruler was an indication that this policy had to some extent become part of the national mindset of that country. And if God gives people or nations an opportunity to change their ways and we don't take it, the result is that that state of mind becomes more and more a part of who we are, just how we live, without questioning or challenging it. If there is sin in our lives or wrongful attitudes in our hearts and we don't repent and turn away from them, then they become more and more a part of who we are and how we live and we end up being under their control, sometimes with disastrous consequences. So maybe, maybe God was giving the Egyptians time to change, to turn back from the unjust and cruel ways they were treating the Israelites. But it didn't work. God says, I've seen, I heard, I know, I've come down. I'm sending you. That may be another possible reason for the delay. God says, I've come down to rescue my people from the hand of the Egyptians. And he then says to Moses, and I'm sending you to do it. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Hang about I thought God said he was coming down to rescue his people. He was going to bring them up to the land he promised to give them, and now suddenly Moses is in the frame for the job. How does that work? Well, that's how God works. He didn't send legions of angels to airlift his people out of Egypt and transplant them effortlessly and safely into the land of Canaan. He was looking for Someone. Someone who would lead his people to safety. A man he could use to fulfill his purposes. And Moses was the man. I thought, and again I'm clearly speculating here, was Moses the first person God had in mind? Was Moses the first person that he called to do this task? We know Moses' story because, however reluctantly, he did end up being used by God to rescue the people of Israel. And we know his story precisely because, against his better judgment, he agreed to do it and he succeeded. But in the years preceding the call of Moses, were there others whom God called and they simply said, no, no. If there were, would we expect to hear their story? Well, no, because nothing happened. They passed up the opportunity to be used by God. They didn't heed his call. This is an argument from silence, and I totally accept that. Moses may have been the first man that God called. And even if he was the first man that God called, he needed to be ready God needed to bring him to that point where he had the maturity, the capacity to do what God was calling him to do. God didn't act beforehand because he needed the right man to be ready to achieve his purposes. So the delay may have been because God needed Moses to do the job for him and before Moses was ready, nothing could happen. So maybe there may have been others before Moses who didn't accept his commission, in which case the delay could have been down to reluctance on their part. I accept it's a speculative argument from silence, but it's possible. The point is, when God sees something that needs doing, God needs someone to do it because God chooses to work in partnership with people to achieve his purposes. That's all part of his mandate in making us in his image to be responsible for the earth he created. He has delegated us the responsibility for the well-being of the world in which he's placed us. Sometimes I think there's a danger that we misuse prayer as a way somehow of abandoning our responsibility. Say, God, God, sort this out. Would you do something? It's all a mess. Would you, would, you, would you make it better? As if we're helpless infants needing someone to clean up after our own mess. But God doesn't just press a button on his heavenly console to reset the game and start again when something goes wrong down here. God calls and recruits people to do his will. Because he works in partnership with us. Uses our background, our experience, our gifts, our position to achieve his purposes. That is how God works. That's why sometimes when we pray, we hear God saying, actually, yeah. Yeah, I want to do something about this. And I want you to be the means of making a difference. And there are various Christians throughout history who have heard God's call and made a difference. Robert Rakes, the philanthropist, saw how children in Gloucester were neglected, left to fend for themselves on Sundays. It was the only day they weren't working in the factories. (laughs) Decided to start a Sunday school for them in the face of opposition because there were people who thought that that was doing work on the Sabbath day. But he cared enough about the children to do something for them. Fifty years later, more than a million and a quarter children were being taught in Sunday schools. And that was the catalyst for the idea of providing widespread schooling for all children for the first time. Robin, you mentioned William Wilberforce, dedicated 46 years of his political career working for the abolition of slavery. The law was passed shortly before he died. It was his life's work. Or the author Harriet Beecher Stowe, whose vivid and emotive portrayal of slavery in her book Uncle Tom's Cabin divided the American nation over its treatment of slaves. It was a catalyst for the American Civil War. Made the North say, this can't go on. We can't carry on treating people like this. There are other people who I will talk about at more length. George Muller lived in Bristol. City devastated by an epidemic of cholera. So many people died, there were hundreds of orphans with no one to care for them. Many were begging on the streets. He saw the desperate need and prayed about it, shared his concern with other Christians and felt called to prove to the people of Bristol the reality of faith in God who answers the prayers of those who trust him. And as he talked about the need to various people, gifts of money arrived, sometimes just a few pence, some hundreds of pounds. He wasn't prepared to go in debt. He waited until a thousand pounds had been given for an orphan home. And he rented a large terraced house in the centre of Bristol. It was opened in 1836 for orphan girls aged seven and over. Within a few weeks it was filled to capacity, with 30 girls and two ladies to care for them. Six months later, he rented another house in the same street with a piece of land for playground. This was for infant girls and boys. The following year, a third house for 40 orphan boys aged seven or over. All the children in his homes were given good clothes, enjoyed warm, clean homes, they were brought up to share in the household duties, and they never went hungry, although stocks of food frequently ran out. Miller's testimony is that as he prayed, amazing things happened. One morning, with no bread or milk with which to prepare breakfast, grace was said, thanking God for what he would provide. And the doorbell rang, and there was the baker, who hadn't been able to sleep the night before, felt compelled to back, bake a batch of bread for the orphans. And the milkman, whose cart had broken down just outside, and needed to offload of the churns of milk to repair the wheel. God met their need at that moment in time. When Muller died in 1898, most shops and businesses closed. Flags flew at half mast. Thousands lined the streets. 7,000 people were at the cemetery. An ordinary man who heard God's call. Or I could talk about Rosa Parks. On December the 1st, 1955, after a long day's work at a Montgomery department store where she worked as a seamstress, she boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus for home. And she took a seat in first of the several rows designated for coloured passengers. All public transportation was segregated. There was a line in the middle of the bus separating white, separating white passengers in the front and African-American passengers at the back. And if you were an African-American and you boarded the bus, you got at the front, you paid the driver, you got out of the bus, went around the back... And got in the back to find a seat. As the bus went along its route, it filled with white passengers, and the bus was full, and some white passengers were standing. So the driver stopped the bus, got out, and moved the sign back to release a row of seats and said to the African American passengers, You need to stand up. And Rosa Parks said, No. Don't think I should have to. The police were called, and she was arrested. In protest at her arrest, African-Americans were asked to stay off city buses on that day, Monday the 5th of December, 1955. Stay at home, they said. Take a cab or walk to work. 40,000 walked to work that day or stayed at home. Some as far as 20 miles. And the boycott lasted for 381 days. During which time, dozens of public buses sat idle until eventually the city had no choice but to lift its enforcement of segregation on public buses. And the boycott finally ended on December the 20th, 1956. An ordinary woman who said, enough is enough. Lasting change comes about when ordinary people hear God's call to do extraordinary things. Moses wasn't a great man. When God called him, he felt totally inadequate and unprepared for the immense task God was calling him to do. Who am I, he asks, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He didn't feel up to it. Maybe there was a time when he had felt up to it, that time when he'd murdered the Egyptian because he saw the Egyptian oppressing uh, the Israelites. Maybe he thought, I could do something here. He needed to reach the point where he knew, actually, if he was going to do anything, he needed to depend upon God. Who am I? Who am I to do this? And God's response was, I will be with you. I will be with you. The crucial factor was not who Moses was, but who was with Moses. And the same could be said for Rosa Parks, George Muller, Harriet Beecher Stowe, William Wilberforce, or Robert Rakes. Before God called him, George Muller was into lying, stealing, and gambling. Who would have thought that a man like that would take on board the plight of orphans in the way he did? William Wilberforce was into racing and gambling. These men were who they were and did what they did because God called them. And because God was with them. It's all too easy for us when we see things going wrong to engage in some ritual hand-wringing and ask, why doesn't God do something about it? Well, Exeter says, God sees. God hears. God knows. And when he comes down to do something about it, the first thing he does is look for someone who will respond to his call to go and act on his behalf to bring about the change that needs to happen. Someone to whom he can say, I'm sending you to do this. And I will be with you. If God calls you, you will not feel remotely adequate for the task. But if he does call you, he also promises that he will be with you that can be enough to change the world.